You're listening to DraftKings Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. You Snoop Dogg in the green room? I mean, what what the hell is going on? You want to sit there and stay on the weed? We are giving the license to people to get high. Weed? You jeopardize all of that for some weed? Stay off the weed. Your livelihood, millions of dollars, and you can't stay off the weed? Really? Weed? Weed? Really? It's millions of dollars. And all you have to do is stay off the weed. And you can't do it because you want to smoke some weed? He ain't getting busted for using weed. Everything eviscerated, thrown away, confiscated, taken from you because you can't stay off the weed. Stay off the damn weed. My assignment, uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. Happy 420. I'm Tom Haberstroh. And as always, joined by my Basketball Illuminati comrades, Amin Al-Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to talk NBA award voting process for the media. You might have been blind to how this all works, but we're going to help you see 
everything that's really happening behind closed doors. We'll also have referee expert Don Vaden as our truth teller this week. And also, we'll get a means inconvenient truth, but first. Listening to the agenda. Playoffs with Tom Haverstrom. Playoffs and Amin El Hassan. I mean, what a basketball opening playoff weekend here. The Warriors are back. Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, starter extraordinary. We had Marcus Thompson saying that he might be the best player. Jordan Poole might be the best player. Since the All-Star break, you can make a case. And then here comes Steph Curry coming off the bench. We got Kyrie Irving, double birds behind his head. Some talking in the media between the two teams. Marcus Smart is now the Defensive Player of the Year. Lots to get into. But first, I mean, this Steph Curry thing, he comes off the bench and he's dropping 50 points over 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. It feels like 2015, 2016 Warriors all over again. So easy. It looks so easy out there for him. And I think everyone saw that on Monday night when you watched the Warriors play, that it looked like 2015, as you said, meaning that offense is running with no hitches. There are no hesitations in the cuts. There are no double clutches on the passes. Those guys are moving and, and screening and cutting and spacing and hedging. And the symphony is operating at its jazz-like best. And so it was just so fun to watch. And of course, at the center of it all was Steph Curry. He was just sensational coming off the bench. Was it 32 points in 23 minutes? What was it? Roughly 1,000 points in 23 minutes. Yeah. But it, it felt it felt like 999. I think that's a Zach Harper joke. Is it? Isn't it? I'm sorry. It's not cinephobe. I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to do Zach Harper jokes. Zach Harper shouldn't try to do Zach Harper jokes. Let me just be clear there. Dangerous for your health. Yeah, last night, Steph Curry had 34 points in 23 minutes, 12 of 17 shooting. He was a plus 32 in the game. What that means is that while in the game, the Warriors outscored opponents by 32 points. When he went to the bench, the Warriors were outscored by 10. Mm. I mean, this guy should be starting. I don't know why we're no. continuing to do this. This guy, no. Steph Curry, is unanimous MVP, all-time great, maybe the best scorer, shooter of all time. Why are we doing this thing where he's coming off the bench? Tom. Really? Tom, 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 Tom. Why are you doing the thing? Oh, I'm from the old world of basketball. Let me shut my third eye and my best players have to start. No, 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 no. There's two things at play here. There's a small picture. There's a big picture. There's a small picture. There's a big picture. The small picture one, you know, I don't, you may not have to open your whole third eye. Maybe you could squint through it and you could see it. Small picture is this. Steph Curry, great off the bench. If he starts... He's going to be great as a starter. So it doesn't matter where you play him, especially given that he, first of all, if you believe some of the reports, it was his idea to come off the bench. But second of all, he is ego-free when it comes to this. He's one of those rare individuals where, yeah, I'll come off the bench if that's what's best for the team. So you don't have to worry about soothing or massaging his ego as you would 99% of the other superstars in the league. But Jordan Poole, Starting, being in that role, you're getting the best out of him. If you bring him off the bench, you don't quite get the best out of him. If the little baby wants a little toy and that what makes the whole house happy and sane, give the little baby the toy. It doesn't matter. Steph Curry's like, ah, oh, play with the toy already. He can start. Now, the other reason for this, you're going to have to open your third eye real nice and wide, okay? We saw the Warriors play great in these two games. This is like 2015 all over again. It means we expect them to take a little trip to a, a little land known as the NBA Finals, right? And if they go to the Finals and they win and Steph Curry comes off the bench for the entirety of the playoffs, you'll get one of the rarest anomalies ever because tom i did my own research i know this is the agenda but i did my own research i went back to the annals of history not to be confused with the annals of history mm. and every single finals mvp but one has started the majority of their regular season games and the majority of their playoff games and all of their nba finals games en route to being a finals mvp so andre Iguodala in 2015 the one exception, 77 uh, games played in the regular season, zero starts. 
zero starts through three rounds of the playoffs and only three starts in the finals, games four, five, and six. You say to yourself, wow, that will never be matched again, and maybe it won't, but you know who can match and surpass that? Steph Curry, by not starting a single game en route to his very first finals MVP trophy. That Tom Habershow is thinking with your third eye right there. Wow. I don't know what to think about. I mean, it's kind of like you can't beat Michael Jordan at his own game. He's 6-0 and in the NBA Finals. So LeBron James like, you know what? Got to find a new way. I got to recreate my storyline. Mm-hmm. I can't beat Michael Jordan at 6-0. and So mm-hmm. what if I beat him at, I won a championship in Cleveland. I won a championship in Miami. And I won a championship in LA. Try to beat that. Three Finals MVPs in three different cities. Do that, Michael. Oh, that's right. You were too scared to leave the friendly environs of the United Center. This is the only place I've ever known. I'm never going to leave until I'm old and gray and it doesn't really matter. That's how you do it. You change the narrative. You change the narrative. And right now, the narrative about Steph Curry is that he's never won a finals MVP. You know, if he goes and he starts and he wins finals MVP, you know what the Stugats of the world are going to say? Do it again. Oh, you win another one. You only have one. But if you do it with one arm tied behind your back, figuratively speaking, coming off the bench. Like Carlos Boozer up in Alaska working on his left-handed layup. There you go. If you do that, is that how he became a lefty? Yeah. Really? Wow. His dad tied his hand behind his back. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> Apparently, Mays did his own research, too. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Welcome to the Illuminati, everybody. But if you raise the degree of difficulty on what you're doing, right? Say, I can't shoot as well as Steph Curry, but if I practice shooting blindfolded, can I shoot better blindfolded than Steph Curry can? That, I've even the playing field there, and that's what Steph Curry can do right here by continuing to come off the bench as a super sub. Slight problem with that, I mean. What's that? If he stays on the bench as a super sub, that leaves a little bit more opportunity for, according to Marcus Thompson, the Warriors' best player this year, Jordan Poole, to get even more shine and swoop in and steal his own finals MVP. Because we know that the media loves to give the Warriors finals MVP trophies to anyone but Steph. I love Marcus Thompson, but he's insane. He's an insane person. <laughs> no. I don't know how you watch those first two games and walk away saying Jordan Poole is the reason. I don't. If I had to give an MVP for the first two games of a playoff series, you know who I'm giving it to? Might be another fellow podcaster out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Draymond Green. Draymond Green is far and away the MVP of this series thus far. I'll tell you what. He's the best podcaster in the playoffs i've ever seen i don't know andre iguodala is pretty good too iguodala is pretty good too i don't know if you've heard of point forward i mean i'll give it to you because iguodala didn't play in game two but iguodala is by far yeah he didn't play he's in the playoffs he's by far the best podcaster you know how i know maze you know who his guest last week on point forward was draymond green (laughs) that's right it's what we call synergy folks we call it second spectrum when people start yelling you and all this stuff is but so much you can take uh, as a competitor and um, you know we're the ones expected to be docile and be humble and take a humble approach nah fuck that's the playoffs playoffs this is what it is you know I, I've I know what to expect in here and it's the same energy I'm giving back to them it is what it is I'm not really focused on it it's fun where I'm from I, I've dealt with so much so coming in here it, you relish it as a competitor and this isn't my first time in TD Garden so what you guys saw and what you guys think is as entertainment or the fans think is entertainment all is fair in competition you know so if some somebody's gonna call me out of my name i'm gonna look at them straight in the eye and see if they really bout it most of the time they're not from a basketball perspective do you feel like the hostility that you get it's not hostility fans, bro do you feel like the energy you get from fans in this building brings embrace out it the best fr- from you embrace it embrace it it's the dark side embrace it I mean, I want to take you back to 2010, 2011, Miami Heat. LeBron James tried to be the villain Mm. in that season. Yeah. The famous quote where he said, you got to go back to your basically your miserable lives. To this day, it's still my favorite LeBron James quote of all time. And I think it was 100% accurate. Way to go, LeBron. Even though, as you said, he didn't want to be a villain. So he kind of backed off of that energy very quickly. Kyrie Irving, on the other hand. 
very good villain. Oh, yeah. He is eating up this Boston series. From stepping on Lucky the Leprechaun and just wiping his toe and smearing it all over the place. It started with the sage. The sage. It started with the sage. I mean, he's living this up. He's really got the full narrative going, right? Because he once was one of them. But now he returns to strike them down. He dropped 40 points on Defensive Player of the Year, Marcus yeah, Smart. By the way, can we take that one back? <laughs> oh, but he gets so many loose balls. Get out of here, man. <laughs> Yo, I thought I'd heard it all when the Indiana Pacers came out with the secret stats of why Rod Artest is the greatest defender in the league. Not that Rod Artest wasn't a great defensive player, but it's just like, how are we comparing this to every other defensive player if you just keep stats on him? This one takes the cake, though. But Kyrie... Look, here's the deal. You know what he did? What was the guy in Game of Thrones? It was like Jon Snow's uncle who went and lived with the wildlings and stuff. Ah, yes. Uncle Benjen. He's like that. He went north of the wall and he realized, oh, things are different over here. And now he's trying to lead the the charge coming back. But the double middle fingers might have been a little bit across the line, no? As a fellow Illuminati member, I got to remind Kyrie, the subtlety is where it's at. You got to be subtle when you reveal stuff. What we do here, this is revolutionary. Usually Illuminati don't talk. They just manipulate behind the scenes. He's in the heat of the moment. Maybe he's not thinking with his third eye open. Mm. Or maybe he's pointing. Do you think he's pointing to his third eye with both fingers? It's on the back of his head. His third eye. Everyone thinks it's in the forehead. For him, it's in the back of his head, which would explain a lot with how he plays basketball because you got to have like 360 vision to be able to do some of the things that Kyrie Irving does. Wow. If you think about it, the quote, if someone's going to call out my name, I'm going to look at them straight in the eye. So maybe the eye is on the back of his head when the fan, I can't believe Kyrie's on another level, man. He really is. I guess I have this whole Brooklyn Nets thing wrong. Lose game one. We'll see what happens in game two, but it just seems like Kyrie Irving His eye is all the way open. He is playing the villain card. Now he's able to play at home. We'll see what happens when it gets back to Brooklyn. But he's playing, man. He's always been one step ahead. Man, yeah. Boston, Brooklyn shaping up to be the most exciting series in the East. The 2-7 matchup. But 2-7 matchup in the West is pretty exciting, too. Despite a little hiccup the other day, I mean. It takes time to connect the dots. I know that. But also, I know that there could be a day of reckoning when you wish you connected the dots. More quick. More quick. What were we thinking? Why did we wake up when we had a chance? Move it! Demolish it! Blow it up! What gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure. That just ain't so. so. A man's a divinity truth. Communicate this real clearly. The only way I do is city by city, person by person, family by family. There are a lot of people go straight from denial to despair. Without pausing on the intermediate step of actually doing something about the problem. Problem. A man's a divinity truth. 12 points for Towns, more than he... You guys hear that? Don't adjust your AirPods or your car speakers. That's the sound of Memphis versus Minnesota game one the other night. As ESPN, for the second time in less than a week, experienced technical difficulties on its broadcast, this time preventing us from the absolute sheer joy of hearing Richard Jefferson speak. Sarcasm and slash, whatever. Instead, we got commentary play by play i don't know what you would describe what we heard but what we heard was the three voices of mike greenberg Stephen a smith and jalen rose i can't do a jalen rose well yet <laughs> that's the only way we know that it wasn't you by yourself yeah. <laughs> in the studio doing the play by play i mean they rambled and greeny couldn't name players he just said the timberwolves have scored and Stephen a was making grand proclamations and jalen rose revealed what I think he wanted to be like a bombshell piece of news that John Barrett was going to sign an extension in Memphis this summer, which isn't news. Sorry, Jalen. But I'm here to tell you what we actually heard was something else, something far more insidious. Maze, Tom, if I asked you guys, what does Stephen A. Smith do? I want you to name all of the things that he does. 
performance art. Sure, that's a description of what he does, but name all the shows that he appears on. First take. Okay. NBA Countdown. General Hospital. That's three. Go ahead. Good job. Does he have his own radio show still? He has his own ESPN Plus show. That's four. Mm -hmm. He also appears frequently as a frequent contributor to Get Up. That's five. He also will do Sports Center hits. That's six. He also will cover big boxing events for ESPN. That's seven. He'll host NFL Live from time to time. That's eight. You guys see anything missing in the Stephen A. Smith empire of things that he does? Color commentary for NBA games. Color commentary for NBA games. When have we ever heard Stephen A. Smith with a hot mic and action playing right in front of him? It is the one territory, the one terrain he has not yet conquered. Until Saturday. Until Saturday. When mysteriously ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, who broadcasts Hundreds of live sporting events, if not thousands, every year. And now twice in the NBA postseason, once in the play-in, and then once again during the playoff, we get these irreconcilable sound issues that necessitate one man to be the hero, to pull the parachute, come out and save the day. Stephen A. Smith, I submit to you, he is no different than... Jake Gyllenhaal's character in in Spider-Man Far From Home, Mysterio, creating problems that he will then save so that the world looks at him as the next Tony Stark. I see right through you, Stephen A. Smith, right through you with my third eye. Open it up with me, fellas. Wait, what would Stephen A. say about what you just said? How would he respond? That's a great question. Now, I know the brother Amino has it very, very well. He's one of the smartest people covering the game. He works over there down in Miami with my man, Dan Levitard, Stugatz, and the rest of them. I follow Basketball Illuminati. It is one of my favorite podcasts out there, ladies and gentlemen. But you mean to tell me that Amino Acid thinks that I had anything to do with the sound issues that happened in Memphis on Saturday night. That's just preposterous. I mean, what the audacity, the unmitigated gall of this Amino Acid. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Stephen A. Smith, always in attack mode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Really excited for today's Truth Teller guest. His name is Don Vaden. He's the former NBA Finals referee. He's refereed over 50 playoff games in his NBA career. He was also in the management role as the former director of NBA officials and the WNBA officials. And he's now a consultant for third side coaching, working with clients all across the NBA, whether it's coaches, front office execs, or players to help them better understand the role of officiating. So welcome to the show, Don. What a thrill. It's the playoffs, Don. Playoffs? The regular season is over. The players are certainly more hyped. The fans are more excited. Referees, though? Like, are referees 
more nervous heading into these games, your experience as a playoff referee, what do you remember? Every time you start the playoffs, it's like starting your first season all over again. The excitement behind it, there's a nervous energy, no matter how you prepare, you do everything you possibly can to get ready for that moment. It's still not the same. When you walk out on that floor, you know, it's different. You can tell the players are focused. The crowd is is already arrived. It's not a late arriving crowd. They're already in the arena. So you know at the national anthem that this is different. The other thing, there's not seven games going on at one time. It's only one game at a time. And so everybody's watching these games. There is more on the referees. It's more on, you know, everybody that's involved. Don, you mentioned preparation. How do you prepare to ref a game, particularly a playoff game? Well, you have a lot more information. During the regular season, you're going from city to city to city, and you know a month in advance, but it's really hard to keep up with the games. But if you have game number two, you were either off that night and you could watch the whole game as it was unfolding and see all the different matchups. And if there are any potential problems, any potential issues in that game, or if you were working, then you can go back and look at the video on here and look at all the the game again. So you're going to prepare for that matchup. The first four games already assigned. So, you know, going in how to prepare for that next game. And then you're going to get feedback from whoever's supervising that series to let you know if there was anything that happened in there that you're unaware of. So you go in totally prepared for that one game, that one matchup. Don, who's the most persistent lobbyist among coaches, whether it's in the media trying to sway the officiating in the game, in the series, or even in-game, who's the most in-your-ear that you remembered? from your refereeing career? That's a good one because it seems like it's every game I ever had. And I had, I don't know, 60-some games or 50-some playoff games in my career. I can't remember how many, but it seems like they were all jacked up <laughs> to get ready for these games. So they're, they're more vocal. There's more on the line. I think referees don't understand sometimes that these coaches are living and dying on this one game and how it affects the whole series. While as a referee, you only have one game in that series. So you just go in and do your best you can in that series, and then you're gone. You're thinking about the next series or the next game that you have, whereas these teams have to go back and they have to play the same team over again. That's what makes the NBA playoffs so unique and dynamic is that college is one and done, but these are about making adjustments from game to game, and you're going to have a different crew coming in for the next game. There are more eyeballs on these games. I mean, we just saw a press release from the NBA that said this is the most watched opening weekend since 2011 for this opening playoff weekend. Huge audiences for these games, which also means that if you're working the replay center, you have to be on your game too. What is it like being in the replay center for these playoff games where it just feels like all the eyes are on this particular game? Look, I use this term a lot of times. You're seeing everything in high definition, and slow motion. You're so focused on doing your job there and being able to help, being ready for the first replay that comes in for some feedback or make sure you got the right angles up. I mean, you have technicians in there that does that. But, you know, as a referee, you have to be prepared to help if they need you to help on a certain play. So on Monday night, we had a really interesting block charge call that went to a coach's challenge about four minutes in the second quarter. Tobias Harris driving in the lane. Gary Trent Jr. just kind of slides over to get in front of him. And as Tobias Harris is planting, he goes and he hits Gary Trent Jr. Gary Trent Jr. falls. And then Tobias Harris goes up for the shot. The foul was called as a block. Mm -hmm. Nick Nurse didn't take too kindly to that, twirled his finger and went with a coach's challenge. And I was waiting for the explanation. And Monty McCutcheon, who runs the the NBA's referee department, comes on and explains. Let's go to Secaucus, New Jersey, and ask Monty what he thinks of this call. Monty. How are we tonight, Gus? What we're looking at is after the upward shooting motion starts, after he plants, we see Gary Trent Jr. take one more half step over. And as such, once that ball has been picked up and we have the upward movement, he can't be moving. Gary was. This is a correct blocking foul. So, Don, I'm just confused now. I don't know what's a block, what's a charge. Can you explain to me, like, what the biggest myths are with a block and a charge? Like, what people get wrong? Because this explanation actually makes me more confused. All right, so there's two different types of situations that occur on block charge plays. One where it's a dribbler who is on the floor 
And if that's the case, the defender, all he has to do is beat him to the spot. And there's no time and distance allowed. No, there's nothing. You just have to beat that guy to the spot. And, you know, a legal guarding position, as long as you get in front of him and establish that position, I mean, you could be turned looking the other way because you have the right to that spot. But in a situation of last night, you establish legal position. You're able to maintain that to continue to move. And when contact occurs, are you in front of him at the time? That's the play that happened. And it was judged a block. They went to instant replay and they confirmed it as being a block. So we just heard in Monty's explanation that the reasoning why this was a charge was because he deemed Gary Trent Jr. not in place prior to the gather and the upward motion happening. But the upward motion of the shot clearly happens after the shoulder rams into Gary Trent Jr. Does the fact that he gathered before the contact, does that matter at all in terms of establishing whether or not Gary Trent got there in time? No, it does not. Gather has to do with continuation. So if there's a gather and then the foul takes place and he continues to the basket, that's a continuation play. So gather only matters there. It has nothing to do with block charge. The reference last night was he gathered and then planted and started upward and the defender then moved. We're talking about two different types of plays here. Look, I've been in a replay center. If they're going to, sometimes they'll come in to interview someone in a replay center. They may have only seen it once. So it's not like they're looking at it with the crew on TV and they're trying to explain step by step what happened. So the explanation of the play that was used last night is one that the guy plants and starts upward. We have already talked about beating a guy to the spot when you're on the floor. Well, if you are trying to take a charge on someone that's shooting a layup or going up for a dunk, you have to be in place legally prior to them planting his left foot and his shoulder starting upward with the ball. That starts the upward shooting motion on drives to the basket. So that defender has to be there at that point, and he cannot move side to side. But in the instance of last night, you just have to be there prior to that guy making contact. Yeah, because I'm watching this, and it seemed pretty clear that Gary Trent Jr., he was there at the spot well before Tobias Harris went up for his shooting motion. Later in the game, in the third quarter, two minutes left, Maxi just barrels over the defender. They call a charge in the same sort of sequence as the Tobias one, but that was ruled a charge and the Tobias one was ruled a block. So now this block charge, how much does this get litigated in the offseason between referees and the NBA and trying to figure out like the language of this rule? Because it doesn't seem like there's too much consistency here. Well, look, they are both the same play last night. When you look at it, it's the same type play. Now, every play is different. Block charge is one of the toughest plays to call. It's always a difficult decision to start with. But if you can really focus on the defender, if he's legal or not, then you got a better chance. The one thing that Shelly always taught when we were training at the WNBA was in real time, just trust your instincts on these plays. But once you go to replay, you have to judge what you see on that replay. And you can't be influenced by what you called on the floor. You Now you're going to see what you see over there. And so when they came out last night, they judged that there was some movement involved. And look, if Monty comes on and says, look, there was a little bit of movement involved on that play and he, and he didn't quite beat him to the spot, I'm okay with that because it's one of those tough bang-bang plays. But if you're going to explain the ruling on the play, you can't say that he planned it and he wasn't there. He started to move once he started his upward shooting motion because it had nothing to do with this play. I know that the credo of the referee is never to have an opinion about what the rule is. It's just to call the rules as you see it. But I want you to take a step back for a second. And as a basketball fan as well, and as someone who's been around the game as long as you have, Don, should we change the block charge rule in the sense that I know a lot of people, Nate Duncan, I think Kevin Pelton talks about this, about the idea that the charge as a defensive play is just a messy play. It's a messy play to call. It's a messy play that oftentimes can result in injury because guys are sliding and undercutting other players who are leaping up towards the basket. Should we just get rid of it and just say, hey, if you can't make a legal defensive play on this, then you're just going to get called for a foul. Taking a charge is a legal defensive play. You have a choice. On drives to the basket, you have a choice. You can either go up and contest. Mm -hmm. You can go up vertical and try to be a, a nice verticality player where you take it in the chest but jump up even inside the restricted area and maintain that legal position. Or you can draw charges. 
we got some great players in the game today that are just experts at doing that. Blake Griffin is one. Kyle Lowry is one. We can go through almost every team has that guy that can stand in there and take charge. Mo Wagner is excellent at drawing charges. So when you look at players in the league, there's all kinds of ways to defend. And look, our players in the NBA are the best players in the world offensively. And the rules are in their favor. So whatever a defender can do to, to play defense, you got to reward him. And so that's the reason why you continually talk to referees about refereeing the defender on all one-on-one situations, especially on drives to the basket, because you got to get your eyes to that defender and know if he's there or not, especially on guys that take charges. Now, I got to be honest with you. How many times is a charge going to be called if the defender does not fall, collapse to the ground? I feel like in order to get the charge call, you have to fall. Butts on the ground. Or else it's not a charge, which is all acting. For me, that's what's so annoying about the charge call is when a guy barrels through another defender, but he kind of bounces backwards on his feet. That's not a charge. But if he just collapses to the ground and starts flailing around, that's a charge, even though the action is the same exact action. I can tell you why, Tom. Because I had a play one night in L.A. where... Danny Manning went to the basket to dunk and Mark Eden, God rest his soul, stood there and he took it in the chest and Danny ran over him. The problem was Mark didn't fall. So I go offensive foul, right? And I look and Mark is still standing there. Well, there's no way in hell he should ever still be standing there, but he was because he was a giant of a man, right? Right. The place was coming down on me in LA. They were throwing stuff on the floor of the whole thing because I'd called a charge on Danny Manning and the guy didn't fall down. But there's an example. Yeah, it does help when the guy falls down. But I think when you said plows into a guy, so my first interpretation of that is that's an offensive foul. Some guys just back up. Some guys try to firm up and some guys go flying out of there. So if you're refereeing the defender, you're going to be paying attention to what that offensive player does. Does that offensive player go through the space of that defender? And then whatever the results are, are the results. If you referee the defender, it doesn't matter what the offensive player does. But if there's contact involved, then you got to realize, does the offensive player go through the space of that defender, through the legal space? Then you've got something. I mean, we've had offensive fouls on verticality plays where the guy goes in and leads with a knee or wards the guy off A to B movement with your arm or elbow to wrist movement to ward off a defender. So you have those special plays that fall into place, but it's a tough play to start with. I mean, are there certain players that act their ass off or ass on? Oh, ass off. Definitely. We have Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year, is a world-class actor. He puts a lot on it. On the other side of the ball, James Harden puts a lot on it. Now, that's not to say that these guys aren't drawing the contact, Mm -hmm. but they are definitely putting on a performance to let you know they've drawn on the contact. They put the pressure, not just on the player they're playing, but they put pressure on the referees to make a decision every possession. Patrick Beverly, same way. He puts pressure on referees to make decisions. It's easy to go out there and referee when everybody's just playing and nobody's complaining and everybody's going up shooting jump shots and there's no block charge plays and all the out-of-bounds are obvious. Those games are easy, but that doesn't happen. And especially now with everybody playing as hard as they are and every call matters, it's a big deal for referees too. Don, let me ask you this question. Now you've just triggered memories for me. <laughs> it's always a bad thing. Oh, man. <laughs> One of the great thespians of our day, one of the great actors, a real artist when it comes to this, is Manu Ginobili. I knew it! How did I know? Manu, the thing that got us frustrated, I worked for the Phoenix Suns at the time, the thing that got us frustrated was the preponderance of evidence that if this guy flails, quite likely, there was no contact. He is just embellishing. And I never got upset that anyone would fall in the moment for the embellishment. I got upset that someone who has a resume of doing this all the time would still get the benefit of the doubt of the whistle when it happened for the umpteenth time. Do you guys keep books on, hey, this guy loves to pull the rabbit out of the hat, so to speak? And if you do, does it ever sway against them where it could be a 50-50? I don't know if he got hit or not, but you know what? I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt because he's a known actor. You're pretty good. So look, 
you have to be cautious when you label somebody as a flopper or you label them as an embellisher or, or you go in and say, I'm not going to let him fool me tonight. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing you can do because what happens is, as you referred to, is a guy could actually get run over mm-hmm. and you no call it because I'm not going to get fooled by that tonight. Attitude. You just have to referee what happens in front of you. And again, you got to go back to what I told Tom earlier is that you just got to see if does he go through his space. You can't be looking here and it happened to your right and you're not looking right at it. And you see all of a sudden a guy like that goes falling out of bounds and then blow the whistle and say, oh, crap, what do I have now? You have to see the whole thing so you're not fooled. And that could be on a rebound where he's underneath and all of a sudden he goes flying out of bounds. I always said the name of the game was fool the referee. Mm -hmm. And the other name of the game is don't be fooled as a referee. See what you see and call what you see. Hell of a game. (laughs) Damned if you do it, damned if you don't. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Shane Battier, who was on Underdogs with us last week on the Levitard and Friends podcast network, he had a theory, Don, I'm going to throw it at you, that the Louis Scolas of the world, Louis Scola had a mop of hair on his head. Oh, yeah. And Shane Battier, he thinks that they get more calls because they flail and their hair goes everywhere. You can see Jay Crowder, when he flops, his hair goes everywhere. When Manu Ginobili, before Father Time came for him, he had a lot of hair too. Wrestlers, pro wrestlers, they have lots of hair to accentuate the contact and really physically show you that I was hit hard. Don, do you think there is a long hair bias among NBA officials? If you referee in their hair, you're in trouble. <laughs> you just have to referee the legality of the defender. And it starts from his feet up to the contact. And is he legal at the time of the contact? That's all you can do. Whenever the play comes down the court, you're picking out defenders because that's who you have to referee in all these. And then you know that plays to the basket may change from a primary defender to a help defender to a secondary defender. So your vision lines are changing from player to player, but you're trying to get to them because if you watch offensive players in this league, you blow the whistle all the time on plays that are not fouls. And you got to be cautious of that. And that's the reason why refereeing the defender is always the key in those places. Don, I appreciate you coming on and holding everyone accountable in the NBA, not just the players and the coaches, but the officials. So appreciate you keeping everyone's eyes open to that segment, a very important integral part of the NBA. Look, everybody has a hard job. There's no harder job than being a referee, especially on that level at this time of year. And it's going to get harder and harder as it goes on because the games get more intense. And you play a team second time, you play a team a third time, you play a team four times in one week or over a period of seven days. There's a lot of animosity can be going on between the two teams at that point. I mean, I was just enjoying myself flipping through Twitter and I saw an NBC Sports Philadelphia, one of my colleagues, my former colleagues, retweet a story the other day, a graphic. Okay. Markel Fultz alleging some sort of conspiracy involving the NBA. The graphic had former at Sixers guard 2017 first overall pick at Markel F. That's Markel Fultz's handle. Mm Mm-hmm claims that the at NBA is tampering in the MVP vote against at Joel Embiid. That's in the text of the tweet. Then the graphic says the league doesn't want to validate the process for parking. And then Fultz called into Orlando sports radio, 96.9 the game earlier today. Okay. Sometimes all sack sports is out here flipping the media game on its head. Mm -hmm. But this one was not ball sack sports. No. This one was an imposter trying to sack people, but I figured it out. And here's the tell. This quote started with him calling into the local radio station, 96.9. Ball sack would never do that. They would leave out the source, right? I mean, Maze? Yeah, they would either credit the source to be ball sack sports. Right. Or, by the way, you can find out if you listen to our interview with 
Mr. Ballsack from episode what episode was it Mace? episode five the media gets sacked if you listen to that episode you hear him say that he doesn't even need it anymore i mean he realized i can just put anything in fine print underneath no one actually reads it right so this imposter miss shonda brown ms shonda brown with like 145 followers i couldn't find this interview anywhere on the 96.9 the game in Orlando. Did you contact them? Did you ask? Maybe they didn't post it. I did. I was like, do you know this Miss Shonda Brown? Do you know about this call-in from Mark Helfels? Did did he actually call in? Maybe he called in and they just made up a quote and this didn't actually get said. No, the staffer from the game confirmed to me at Basketball Illuminati that that interview didn't take place at all. And yet over 2000 people retweeted this fake news from Miss Shonda Brown as gospel that Markel Fultz is alleging that there's a conspiracy in the NBA that they are keeping the MVP award away from Joel Embiid. This to me, I mean, this to me is just egregious. It's not right. It shouldn't happen that people are putting fake tweets out there when it's not satire. This is not satire. This is someone trying to mislead, to fool people. I agree with you, Tom. And and I think one of the big things here is it's one thing to make up a tweet, to make up a quote. In essence, putting words in the mouths of people who did not say that. Marco Fultz didn't say that. I sent you guys in the group chat an example of someone who tried to get me, who sent me, sent me a infographic of Frank Vogel with his arms crossed and little quotation marks. And it said he wanted fucking Bosch, okay? He told Rob, I think parentheses, Palinka, to make an offer to Ray Allen. And underneath the credit of Frank Vogel, the fine print there is that it was on LeBron James' role in roster development via ESPN LA 710. That's the issue that I have with these latest fakers, these fake ball sacks, if you will. You are attributing it to real news sources. That's not satire at all. That is willful manipulation and lie-mongering. And it's not funny or fun or anything like that. What made ball sacks so funny was that he was within his tweets and his infographics, giving you every indication that this is not real. Think of what the words you're reading is. It's not real. Josh Smith saying that LeBron couldn't play in his era despite him being drafted a year after LeBron and having his career end way before LeBron's. Everything in the quote and the graphic told you that it wasn't real, but people ran with it. This is the opposite. People behind these are just ridiculous. But Tom, we're not here to talk about shoddy, fake prosthetics. That infographic from Ms. Shonda Brown is really just a segue to talk about what we really want to talk about, which is how do these awards get voted on? The NBA for all NBA, for Rookie of the Year, for MVP, all of those NBA awards. The NBA sends out a ballot to 100 media members across the NBA, across the league, lots of national reporters at big outlets. And then they have some smaller local reporters, beat writers for certain teams that are also part of that 100 person media member coalition that votes on these awards. And they fill out, you know, first place, second place, third place. You get some weird and wonky responses, but by and large, these are very, very serious journalists that are weighing in on the NBA awards. And a very disparate coalition of voters, right? There are voters who are international. There are voters who represent rival publications. There are voters who, quite frankly, don't like each other. So the idea that they could collude to keep Joel Embiid, for instance, from winning MVP is just highly unlikely. As you're asking like a bunch of people who for most part, are very competitive amongst themselves to set aside their differences to what end? To teach to Sixers a lesson of something that they stopped doing years ago? Wouldn't they do that to Sam Presti and the Oklahoma City Thunder? That's right. And keep Josh Giddy off the all-rookie team? That's right. But what we're seeing here now is that there are all the other conspiracies that NBA stars are alleging amongst this coalition. Mm-hmm. Bam Adebayo, oh, Defensive man. Player of the Year candidate, was not among the finalists, the three finalists for the Defensive Player of the Year to try to you know drum up some excitement. The NBA just releases the top three. Bam Adebayo wasn't happy about it. Disrespectful, obviously. Um... You know, I feel like I can do anything that, you know, two out of the three can do. Besides, I mean, I can't teach height. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they all three play on TV more than me. 
So I would expect that. You know, they get more TV games and uh, they get more exposure. You know, people like to talk about them more. Don't nobody want to talk about us. I'm not buying this one. I'm sorry. You're not out of buying it? Oh, you're not buying it. I don't think he's even selling it. He's just kind of like lazily throwing it at our feet and saying, please, somebody take this as an explanation. Look, I love Bam Adebayo, man. He's one of the best defensive players in the game. And had he played more than 56 games, maybe he would have been in the top three. Maybe he would have won it outright. But the idea that somehow that media mega market Utah (laughs) is getting so much play (laughs) that that's why Rudy Gobert is in that top three and he's not. Or, again, going back to the coalition of 100 voters, the idea that they would all, A, conspire to keep him off, and slash or B, only watch games that are on national TV. Are you kidding me? I get it. Bam wants to be on national TV more. He feels like the NBA doesn't put the Miami Heat on national TV enough. And that's fair. It's just, why does that have anything to do with the Defensive Player of the Year award when it's like, oh, big Phoenix, big Utah. It doesn't really make much sense. Like Boston, I get. But the other two candidates, like Mikel Bridges and... Rudy Gobert, they're hardly from the big markets, Golden State and L.A. or New York. So I don't buy that. But there are things that happen where if you're in the media, I didn't realize this until I started covering the league at ESPN. It's not a totally clean thing. It's (laughs) kind of weird what happens if you're a voting member of the media. You get sent things, little gifts, and they're kind of like tongue in cheek, like, hey, Carl Anthony Towns, they have like a play on his name and they send you a whole gift package to remind you, hey, put him on your all NBA team. This stuff happens and I don't think people really know about it. I've received coffee. I've received a backpack. I've received... I love this one. I love this one. This is Anthony Davis. Oh, wow. Stuffed doll here from the New Orleans Pelicans. I will cherish this one. So cute. I will not let go of this one. Is New Orleans. This is going to be big someday on the memorabilia market. The collector's item of Anthony Davis stuffed animal from the Pelicans. Are they campaigning for all NBA or for class president? <laughs> Is there a difference? (laughs) But yeah, the the reality is they will ply the voters with wares, with all types of little trinkets and things. I remember there was one year, it wasn't to the media, the Blazers sent out iPods with Brandon Roy highlights on them. Wow. Oh, by the way, you get to keep these, right? Yep. It is bribery at its highest level. Like when you pick up an iPod and there's a U2 album on it, except this time it's just Brandon Roy highlights. Yep. There you go. But the reality is there's all types of manipulations that are happening behind the scenes that I don't know that the general public is aware of. That's why we do this service here on Basketball Illuminati. Let you guys know, yeah, there are all types of cajoling that happens, but it doesn't come from the NBA and it doesn't come from the other voters conniving and scheming. It comes from the very people who complain about not getting enough attention. It comes from the players and the teams they represent. But what's interesting to me is that sometimes it backfires, right? When a player gets all NBA and then you kind of have to pay them more money and then John Wall has a super max deal and it becomes this untradeable contract that does get traded. But doesn't this backfire sometimes to me? And is that these teams are sending out these trinkets to get their player on all NBA and then they realize, oh wait, he's going to just be more expensive for us on the cap. They'd rather pay more for him than to hear him bitch about how I didn't get any support because everybody, the the Celtics sent out a whole fake made up stat for Marcus Smart. What did you guys do for me? They don't want to hear that shit. So they're like, fine, just do it. And if it costs us the extra, well, guess what? I'm glad I can say I had a defensive player of the year or an MVP or an all NBA player on my team. And the other thing is, is that I think access is really important too. I mean, if you have a player who's in your market and you don't want to piss them off by leaving them off a ballot, you kind of have to vote for them. And so this happens too, where certain beat writers have almost no choice but to put a player that they cover and they need to have access or a strong relationship with their agent and they put them on the ballot and vote for that player simply because it's good for business. Yes. Like Marcus Thompson saying that Jordan Poole is the best player on the Warriors <laughs> in 2022. I don't think Marcus Thompson needs any access. It's true. He has no issues getting access. He's like the most beloved reporter in the game. He walks through walls at Marcus Thompson. For a reason. Now we know why. His secrets. But Tom, you're absolutely right. Up until about, I want to say three or four years ago, 
You know who was also part of the voting contingent? Local broadcasters who were employed by the teams that they call games for. So I remember there was a year, I want to say the year it was between Kawhi Leonard, Draymond Green, and Rudy Gobert for Defensive Player of the Year. P.J. Tucker received two votes for Defensive Player of the Year despite playing on a team that wasn't good overall and wasn't good defensively. And those two votes were from Al McCoy, the radio play-by-play man for the Suns, and Tim Kempton, who is the radio color analyst for the Suns. But I mean, the local guys, they see them every day. Who's a better (laughs) advocate than the people who've watched every single minute of every game? That's a good point, Maze, except for the fact that unlike the local beat writer, they are directly compensated by the teams that they cover. And thus, they are, by definition, compromised from any sort of level of objectivity, right? There's no way you could tell me your objective. You are literally on the take with a paper trail, with a 1099 tax form attached. Yeah, and some writers, they just don't want to do this anymore, and they just pull themselves out of this process altogether. There's a conflict of interest that our votes should not impact these salaries, that Jason Tatum last year, by virtue of not being all NBA, he loses tens of millions of dollars. And some media members are just like, I don't want to have any part of that. Well, Brian Winhurst was the one who years ago when Anthony Davis needed to be all NBA to get his Supermax, which would have been, I believe, 20 to 30 extra million dollars for him. Brian Winhurst suggested if I were an NBA player in that position, I would literally just find a list of the 100 voters, which isn't hard because remember, this is all published. It's all public who the voters are and literally pay them each $10,000. Oh, yeah. It'd be a good investment for Anthony Davis to literally pay every media member $100,000 to juice the wheels for, for that award. Now, I respect that. I think it is a conflict of interest for media members to be voting on these awards. Last year, the only all-NBA vote for Chris Middleton came from a media member in Milwaukee. Last year, there were only two media members that voted for Nikola Vucevic for all-NBA, and one of them was the Orlando Magic beat writer. There are only two media members that voted for Trey Young all-NBA, and one of them was the Hawks beat writer. And I get it. Like I don't totally blame them. It's a conflict of interest. And we talk about it all the time on this show. People will act in the interest of what they're incentivized, right? So if I have to cover Trey Young, I know Trey Young is going to look up who did and didn't vote for him. I damn sure better be on that list because guess what? Tom Habistro, national guy, lives in Charlotte. Whether he votes for Trey Young. Oh, now you know I live in Charlotte. Okay. (laughs) I do now, not after the episode. Which episode was it, Mace? Aggregators, episode eight. (laughs) Tom Habistro, how many times do you have to interact with Trey Young? Maybe once or twice a year if you're working on something specific. Meanwhile, I'm not going to name the name because I don't want to put people on blast. But if you are covering Trey Young on a day-to-day basis and you are one of the people who snubs him, that can make your job on a day-to-day basis incredibly difficult. Yeah, even like Coach of the Year, I noticed, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I noticed that media members that are East Coast-based tend to vote for Tom Thibodeau for Coach of the Year last year. And the ones that are West Coast-based tend to vote for Monty Williams. A little bit is what you said, Mays, is what better advocate than someone who sees Monty Williams coach every other day? The other thing is they're going to have to talk to Monty Williams more often. They're going to have to interact, physically interact with Monty Williams more often and have those conversations with Monty. And if the vote is uh, Tom Thibodeau, who I'm barely going to see, maybe ever see because I cover the Sacramento Kings. Unless you're checking out those Knicks loss graphics, baby, then you'll see Tom Thibodeau all the time. That's right. Which episode was that, Maze? <laughs> oh, yes. That's episode seven, The Scapegoat, in which we discovered that Kevin Durant is the face of the Brooklyn Nets losses. When you're in the game, you realize how this all works is it's not clean. It's a little bit dirty the way that these voting ballots are, are filled out because there is a conflict of interest. I don't know if we need to go back to having it all anonymous again because then the incentive for the Atlanta Hawks beat writer to vote for Trey Young or the, the Charlotte Hornets beat writer to vote for Lamar ball, or maybe it gets even worse because you don't have to own up to your name being out there. I think it's important to know who the voters are, but we don't need to know what they voted. I think the secrecy probably will help because you want to give people the freedom to vote according to their conscience, basically. Now, it'll be hard for the Atlanta Hawks beat writer to explain to Trey Young how he voted for him when Trey Young doesn't get a single vote for all NBA. Then it's a little harder then, but at least... We provide some cover for the voters. 
That's right. And you know what? I don't care how much money you're going to be able to pay me. I'm not going to say that Marcus Smart deserves to win Defensive Player of the Year because of all the loose balls that he's recovered. Sorry. Not going to sell my soul to the devil there. None of the three of us are voters, and that's on purpose. Because here at Basketball Illuminati, we stay unfettered by the strings of influence and power that the league wants to lord over the people who cover it. No, we are the watchdogs of the watchdogs. We are the ones who keep an eye out, and we are the ones who broadcast the truth to you so that you, listener, may say, ah, I was blind, but now I see. 